This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we are here for you every Monday night, 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Given my background and interest in innovation and operations management, healthcare shows are always something that I look forward to. We already had shows on radiology and artificial intelligence, on oncology and immunotherapy, and a recent show on advances in surgery. An industry that is particularly interesting in its potential to be transformed through digitalization is sleep medicine. In the old days, sleep studies were done overnight in the hospital. Then came home studies that allowed you to pick up a device from your doctor or a sleep clinic and get the sleep study done in your own bed. But what's next? Will soon our Fitbit or Apple Watch do a sleep study automatically every night and at zero marginal cost? This question makes sleep clinics a great microcosmos to discuss of what's happening in a number of clinical specialties. To investigate the field of sleep medicine and to reflect on what lessons it carries on the work of tomorrow in healthcare, it's my pleasure to welcome two wonderful guests today. In the first half of the show, I will speaking, be speaking to Dr. Gandhis Majeka, founder of Sound Sleep Health, a clinical enterprise in Washington focusing on sleep medicine. And then in the second half of the show, I want to welcome Dr. Nalaka Gunarata from the Sleep Clinic here at the Perlman School of Medicine. At this point, welcome, Gandhis. Well, glad to be here. Gandhis, um, it's always great to have former students on my show. Gunnis graduated from our Wharton Executive MBA program out in San Francisco a short while back. Uh, Gunnis, do you now sleep better that you are, have reached alumni status? <laughs> to be sure. Uh, I was uh, considerably sleep deprived for two years, and uh, it uh, took me a little while to catch back up, but now I'm feeling pretty good. Talk about sound sleep health, what it does, and what type of patients you see. Sure. We are a specialty uh, medical practice focusing exclusively on sleep disorders. Uh, and at the, at the moment, uh, I am the uh, medical director and the sole physician in the practice. Uh, we also have three mid-levels working along with me. They're all uh, nurse practitioners. Uh, I see most of the consultations and um, order the sleep testing as indicated and then depending upon the complexity of the case, I either follow the case along or move the case into the hands of the nurse practitioners who then implement the treatment plan. What are some of the most prominent uh, sleep disorders that you see? In the past, the single dominant sleep disorder that we would see was uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Um, for years, that appeared to be somewhere between 70 and 80% of our referral volume. I'm not sure how that came to be, but uh, I think it was uh, the, co the consequence of um, the some of, you know of the education process that uh, doctors underwent while in medical school and residency training. Um, it certainly is a uh, uh, a large problem, but there are many other problems that uh, for many years went um, uh, under detected and under treated, including insomnia, 
uh, parasomnias and uh, other sleep disorders such as excessive daytime sleepiness such as narcolepsy. So over the past several years, we've seen more of a balance emerging. Uh, I would say that at the moment, probably 50% of our referrals are for sleep apnea and 50% are for the other um, kinds of issues, including insomnia and excessive daytime sleepiness. Imagine I came to you with an undiagnosed sleep apnea. What would be the clinical workflow that you would go through with me to diagnose me and to then treat me? Sure. And just as you said, whereas in the past there uh, would have been um, an overnight sleep test done in the facility, now almost invariably following the consultation and determination of the medical necessity for uh, a sleep test, we would send the patient home with a portable recorder that would uh, acquire the necessary information in the comfort of the patient's own home. Uh, I like to do these tests over multiple nights whenever possible because of the significant night-to-night variability in the um, amount of snoring and apnea and oxygen desaturation. Preferably, I like to do three nights and then average the results. Uh, for the patient, it's fantastic because they just take this little battery-powered device home that's not attached to the wall. They need to get up and use the bathroom or take care of the kids in the middle of the night. They can just get up and, uh, without taking the device off, take care of what they need to do and then go right back to bed. It's very convenient. And the results are very good. So uh, we don't really see any, any reason to bring people into the facility for routine testing anymore. So you see me for a consultation that is with you as a doctor. I will then speak with you or one of your technicians to kind of understand how to use the device. I'll bring it back. It, it has enough yeah. memory, I imagine, to just record those three nights. And then the technicians will prefer re, kind of prepare some form of report and then use it down to discuss it with me? Or how does it how does it move from then That's the correct. end of diagnosis? That's correct. The, and I sit treatment. down to discuss it with you, and I show you the results on the, on the screen so that I can um, so that you can get a, a better understanding of what it is that I look at. Uh, I find that uh, walking the patient through the actual raw data achieves a better level of comprehension on the patient's part and ultimately a better buy-in with the treatment plan. Take me inside that black box. So that raw data, is that a breathing frequency? Is it a heart rate? Is it an acoustics of my snoring? What do you, what do you refer to as the raw data? Sure. Uh, for the portable sleep tests, we uh, have several channels. The device looks like a little box of the size of maybe an MP3 player um, that sits on your chest and there's a stretchy belt that goes around your back and snaps into both sides that holds it snugly into place. And the belt has a sensor in it that records the movement of your chest with your breathing. And so that's a, a channel that's recorded. And, and when you play it back, it looks a little bit like a sine wave. Um, then there's a, a little tube that goes to uh, something called a nasal cannula that's worn in the nose. or like little prongs that go into the nostrils that detect variations in airflow. So we have another channel that records airflow. And secondary to that, um, that channel can be divided into two components, a high-frequency component and a low-frequency component. The low-frequency component shows the up and down of your breathing, the in and out of your breathing, whereas the high-frequency component can detect snoring because snoring is a vibratory, higher-frequency um, type of sound wave. Um, in addition to that, there's a wire that goes to a little fingertip um, oximeter um, looks like a little um, um, end of a glove that sits on the end of your index finger, and that records um, oxygen saturation. And also secondary to that, it records your heart rate. So we get channels of um, airflow, 
um, snoring, chest movement, heart rate, and oxygen saturation. The device also has uh, a, uh, a microphone so that we can do a secondary confirmation of your snoring, and it also has a body position sensor um, so that we can see if you're on your back or on your side. Finally, it has an accelerometer built into it so that we can um, determine whether you're um, quiet and lying still or whether you're active and moving, such as if you need to get up and use the bathroom. That way we can exclude active portions, active movement portions from the analysis because it won't be relevant to us. The device does not tell us if you're asleep or not because there are no wires on your head. We have no way of determining what your brain activity is like. Uh, consequently, we have to make the, um, uh, the, uh, um, the approximation that if you're lying still and you're breathing evenly, that you're more likely than not asleep. And that's accurate about 90% of the time, which is not perfect, but it's actually good enough for the purposes of our analysis. And when you're talking about the raw data, the, the hallmark, as I understand, of a sleep apnea is uh, basically a, 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 rapid, a dramatic decrease in breathing frequency? Um, it's not the frequency so much as it is the amplitude. We're looking to see a drop in amplitude of at least 30 seconds, a uh, 30% rather, from the surrounding baseline, uh, lasting 10 seconds or longer. And associated with the drop in oxygen saturation measured from the fingertip oxygen sensor of at least 4%, um, that uh, qualifies as a partial apnea event, whereas um, a full apnea event would be a drop in, ox in um, amplitude of 80% or greater from the surrounding baseline for 10 seconds or longer. So 10 seconds would encompany probably, for an average breather, two breath, uh, two, two breath cycles. So if you see two breaths or longer that uh, um, have a substantial drop in terms of their amplitude uh, compared to the surrounding baseline, that would suggest that you've um, partially occluded that your tongue or your palate dropped back into the back of the throat and are getting in the way of your ability to achieve um, a full breath. Now, again, there's one benefit I have of having you head in my operations class in San Francisco is I know the wizardry that you can do in Excel. And so I was wondering, when you speak about <laughs> interpreting this raw data, um, could you write me an Excel macro that basically detects if I have sleep apnea? Or is there some other magic uh, gestalt that you have to find in the data? Or is that reasonably codifiable? That's a great question. And um, there have been, uh, there's been a lot of effort put into trying to automate the process of, um, of scoring uh, sleep testing. And it's achieved reasonably uh, good results, although um, from my uh, standards, not quite, not quite up to snuff yet. Um, and I have to tell you that a, a number of players, including Philips Respironics um, and some other substantially well-funded players, have, have attempted to, to do this. Um, but the fidelity compared to hand scoring is still only in the 75 to 85% range at this point. The reason for that is that there is considerable um, artifact that can be introduced into the recording because of movement, um, because of variability in terms of the belt tightness, um, uh, because of uh, um, the tendency for people to either breathe through their mouth or their nose, and so the loss of airflow signal sometimes because the patient's mouth popped open. Um, uh, any of a number of causes, sometimes the oximeter falls off um, in the middle of the night or becomes uh, uh, partially detached and you, you have artifact because of that. And so the automated um, software isn't 
has not been particularly graceful at dealing with those kind of artifacts, and sometimes they're difficult to to discern from real signal. Um, and so we've, uh, by by because of that, it's still an artisanal process where we have a technician who goes through every 30-second epoch of the night and uh, and looks at it on a screen and confirms the machine scoring. We do have the computer algorithm score the um, the, t- the test, but we do need to verify each um, each event. So it's still a little bit artisanal in that regard. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with my former MBA student, Dr. Gandhis Majaika, who is the founder of Sound Sleep Health, and we're talking about sleep clinics and how sleep clinics are changing in times of digitization. Uh, before we get to kind of all to digital, we went a little bit into digital and potentially machine learning a moment ago, but talk a little bit, Gandhis, talk about the operational challenges that you have in terms of managing the clinic. What keeps you up at night as the founder sure, of this clinic? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it, uh, there, there is, uh, being a, being a, we're a small clinic and we're freestanding. We're not associated with a large um, hospital system. Um, it's imperative uh, for us to be um, as lean as possible um, to maintain um, reasonable margins, and uh, that's a constant challenge um, and a constant source of experimentation and, and innovation um, in uh, house. Um, but one area, and, and certainly that's um, that's uh, constantly in our mind in terms of how we can achieve um, the, the most um, with the least staff without comp- without uh, pairing it so close that we compromise patient care. Fortunately, um, a lot of um, uh, we, we've been the recipients of, of, of the kind of the winds of innovation, and that communication with patients has become um, a, secure communication with patients has become a lot easier. We now have a, um, a, a system where patients can securely text us if they have questions uh, right from their phone wherever they are. So the communication from the patient's perspective is a lot easier and a lot more. Um, spontaneous than it was before. They don't need to email us. They don't need to call um, and wait online. And so that's reduced um, uh, online call wait times for patients. We've been able to clear our um, our call center from um, a lot of the um, the volume that's happened otherwise. Um, we are very very careful about um, texting, emailing, and calling our patients to remind them to uh, keep their appointments. Um, this is an area of, of intense interest and focus for me during my MBA program, um, how to keep um, uh, our um, patients um, from dropping off our roster and how to, especially how to manage last-minute cancellations on the schedule. Um, just like any um, system that's got uh, uh, you know, an inventory and a flow, you want to try to, keep your, um, try to keep your resources as busy as possible. And uh, any opening in the schedule um, represents a, you know, a kind of a tremendous opportunity cost for us. So it's very important for us to keep our schedule as um, um, as clean and as full as possible. So we have um, uh, we, we you know as you as you may remember I, I try to I try to automate this and I try to develop a software that would that would actually automate so challenging. It's still in the works and we're working on it. But in the meantime, we've trained our staff to really attack openings on the schedule aggressively. In particular, if there is a last-minute cancellation on our schedule, to find a patient that is currently scheduled at some point in the future and try to move them forward into that open slot whenever possible. That really helps us keep our schedule full. We are not uh, capacity-driven. We are demand-driven. We we try to keep you know, the sort of a, a competitive 
um, play for us because unlike our large um, competitors, we need to have some kind of uh, some kind of a compelling reason for patients to come and see us. So we try to keep our wait time short. So we, we are slightly overstaffed in order to be able to achieve that. But that yields you know open spots in our schedule that then we try to attack aggressively and, and fill um, um, uh, you know within hours usually of, of, of the spot happening. If we go back to my kind of potential visit with you for an undiagnosed sleep apnea, uh, you brought up the topic of money. What what would be a reimbursement for that procedure where uh, basically uh, I'm going to see you for a consultation, we do three overnight tests at my house, you come and read it. Uh, from By the time that we have a, kind of a diagnosis that you're confident in, what type of financial consequences are we talking about, independent whether I pay personally out of pocket or whether it is paid through my insurance? Yes, of course. Well, it, so it's a, it you know it depends. Of course, it depends upon whether you're paying cash or whether um, your health insurance is helping out. It also depends upon where you go. So if you come and see us for a freestanding clinic, um, will our costs to you will be a little lower than if you're going to um, uh, to get the equivalent care in a large hospital system, um, because their overheads are higher and their costs are a little bit higher. But a typical, if you were paying cash, it would probably cost you. About two thousand dollars to um, have the consultation, get the testing done, um, and uh, learn the results, and maybe see us for one or two follow-ups to um, to implement the results. That does not include the cost of the um, equipment, if there is equipment. For instance, if there is medical equipment such as a CPAP device, which is a device that's used to assist with breathing, um, if you have been di- diagnosed with sleep apnea, or a dental appliance to move your lower jaw forward to help you breathe better and snore less. Um, that two thousand dollars doesn't include that cost. How does it compare to the previous uh, cost? cost that, How does this compare to the overnight sleep testing? Yeah, yeah, overnight sleep testing. Um, so the cost of the home sleep testing alone would typically run between three and four hundred dollars per night per test. So if I'm doing it for three nights, that would run about a thousand dollars. The cost of a facility-based test depends upon where it's done. If it's done here in our facility, it might be in the vicinity of $1,200. Um, if it's done at a large hospital center, it might be as high as $2,000, depending upon um, the, um, the, the charge master of the facility, of course. Um, so there is savings. And, uh, and not only is there savings, but we acquire better and, I believe, more robust data. Um, we are able to, um, uh, to get some of... Uh, sense of the natural night-to-night variability in a person's uh, snoring and breathing. Um, there is quite a bit of variability. And so, you know, if I could do 10 tests, I might be able to begin to see what a confidence interval looks like in that natural bell curve of how much apnea you have. Um, but three tests begins to bracket, I think, the shape of the bell curve. And it's, uh, I think it's a reasonable compromise in terms of, um, of effort and, and resources. So it's interesting that the, so it comes out a little bit less than it than what what a facility based test would cost. It's interesting that the new technology of home testing thereby has made it more convenient for the patient. It has basically made it more reliable as a reading. You do a more reliable diagnosis because of that bracketing that you were pointing to a moment ago, and it is cheaper. So that one has been a win for everybody, really. Yeah, it's a huge innovation. And the sleep clinics, I have to say, we're, we're pushing back again against it for a long time because, as you know, we're still in um, a kind of economy where it's a you know, discounted fee-for-service model and we make money for every procedure. 
Um, in the future, I think uh, uh, it will become more and more accepted as healthcare transitions to a more of a capitated system where we're given um, a certain dollar amount to care for a population um, at risk for a disorder. And then we try to spend the, the least possible amount of resources to um, adequately treat that population. In that case, home sleep testing, I think, will really rise to the fore and become very popular. How did you experience that transition from the old to the new technology? I mean, I would imagine there must be many clinics out there who are either gone bankrupt or still licking their wounds because of a big chunk of their revenue changing overnight. And then there were oftentimes the, the time to adjust a cost structure for a business that can take decades. Oh, oh, absolutely. And in fact, um, uh, Sleep Healthcare Centers, which is uh, which was a Harvard affiliate, uh, in uh, primarily based in New England, had 18 centers, and they, uh, you know, they they went bankrupt because of this turbulence introduced by home sleep testing. The turbulence was driven by demands from um, uh, from insurers primarily, and there were a few, um, you know, companies that had already developed um, the technology to be able to mail. Um, kind of the technology, also the logistical um, backbone to be able to mail patients these tests um, and have the patients mail them back. Um, so at, at great savings, and not necessarily at, at, at you know um, uh, with, with particularly high quality, but the insurance companies were more interested in the savings and the quality. But that was a, a you know a dagger in the heart of this um, uh, of uh, sleep healthcare centers because they had very large leases that they had commitments to. We had commitments to, 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 to staff, um, in some cases healthcare providers who had uh, contracts that they couldn't get out of. Um, it was very costly for them, and they got into a liquidity crisis. Um, there's been a lot of turbulence, and we experienced some of this turbulence internally. We had to lay off um, uh, or repurpose uh, some of our night staff um, because they weren't really necessary any, anymore. So we brought many of them to, to work days instead of nights. Um, we um, had to we had two uh, overnight sleep centers, and we were, um, you know, committed to leases on both of those. So we had to get out of one of the leases because we don't didn't need both anymore. We're down just down to one overnight center, um, and we had to uh, make the, you know, the capital investment in the home sleep recorders, which was uh, material. Um, and then we and then we had to treat. In essence, we had um, a lot of overnight sleep testing equipment that was a sunk cost, and we had to kind of just deal with the fact that that was no longer going to be generating revenue for us. So all these things generated quite a bit of turbulence during the transition process. Uh, but it was not uh, as bad as I had feared. I think the whole the whole process took about a year, and now we're feeling very smooth and things are going really well, and, um, uh, and, uh, we're, we're, and patients are very happy. So you mentioned that transition and the dagger in your chest. I mean, how do you feel about potential new threats arriving through the Fitbits and the Apples of this world? I think both of them are looking pretty actively in, in sleep studies, both at the more recreational yeah. level, but, but even at the apnea level. For sure, level. yeah. Well, we have, uh, it's, it, not a day goes by where a patient doesn't reach for their smartphone and, sh and, and want to show me their Fitbit data. And I think that's great. I, I, am, I, I welcome that. I think it's fantastic. Um, I, I don't see the Fitbit as being, pardon me, immediately threatening to us because the, the data from the Fitbit is, um, you know, it's purely, it's, it's really an accelerometer. Some of the more sophisticated devices also measure heart rate. But, but from limited channels um, like movements and heart rate, it's very difficult to infer what the, 
um, nature of the underlying processes, um, whether there's sleep apnea, whether there's insomnia, um, what sort of insomnia it is. Um, and so, but it does raise awareness on the part of the patients. And so when they come in to show me their data and they're concerned because they're, you know, they're, they, they say things like, am I dying, doctor? Uh, it, my Fitbit shows that I'm, I'm only sleeping three hours a night. Um, I need to reassure them that, that the correlation between the data that Fitbit has and the data that we um, show from our kinds of testing is not very good. Um, the correlation coefficient in terms of the sleep staging um, is, you know, 50, 60% at best. And so uh, part of my job is to reassure them that, no, you're probably not going to die, but we should probably do some more accurate testing that has better fidelity to what's really going on in your brain um, than what you can derive from a Fitbit. Um, and so it's become um, a useful uh, indirect uh, marketing tool for us because they, they come in, they're very concerned, um, but, part of, but, but part of our workflow has shifted in that part of what I need to do is to reassure the patients and to then order the, the proper testing. Um, we have uh, now quite a bit of experience, you know, looking at you know uh, the Fitbit data as opposed to um, the actual um, EEG data, the brainwave data that shows how a patient is sleeping, and we find that the correlation is quite poor. Um, that's not to say that it may not change in the future, um, but at the moment the correlation isn't great, and so um, that will keep our doors open indefinitely. I think. <laughs> Speaking about the future, so I'm I'm kind of. I never dare to make predictions on this show. I've been in academia too long to know that I'll always be wrong. But I'm kind of torn here, right? On the one side, there is this effect that in a number of disruptive innovations, we have seen technologies establish beachheads in the lower end of the markets, in the simple applications, and they were able to creep up more than people initially believed. So that makes me somewhat pessimistic for Absolutely. you. But on the other side, there's this great market expansion effect that through the Fitbits, everybody gets stuck talking and you know thinking about their sleep that previously was totally not considering this kind of issue or this indication at all. So between two those two those trends, how do you think they will play out? Yeah, well, I I, see, I clearly see the, um, the the latter in play all the time. We we um, have um, an inbound. Kind of marketing um, program with a blog and a website that makes it easy for patients to contact us to request appointments. And we've seen a steady growth in organically-based traffic um, from patients who just are looking for a solution, find us uh, um, on a web search, and then request to come in, precisely because they're concerned about what they're seeing on their Fitbits. And that's been great for us because it's been effortless. We 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 are riding we are riding that wave, and I'm very pleased with that. Um, I certainly believe that there will be more um, innovations coming from you know uh, consumer level products like Fitbit and from Apple Watch and so forth that will challenge us in the future. And I welcome that. Um, I think that it, uh, I think that we'll need to adjust and find ways to survive um, in this new uh, climate. But there are many things that patients may not be able to do on their own. Uh, an example would be um, this in in incredible revolution in terms of the um, uh, 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 accuracy and accessibility to genetic testing for any variety of disorders. So now there are uh, genetic tests that determine your propensity or your sensitivity to things like caffeine or alcohol um, and your ability to sleep deeply, your tendency to move excessively at night, um, all these are now available as reports on 23andMe or Helix or some of the other, um, you know, Prometheus and some of these other programs that are now available to the consumer. 
the patients won't necessarily, potential patients won't necessarily know how to interpret them or what to do with them. So we will continue to play an important role as educators, as mediators, um, as, uh, as, uh, um, as teams that help to implement um, a treatment plan for patients. Uh, we'll continue uh, to, 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 to fulfill that niche. And the question is whether, whether it will remain profitable, and that will, that will be our biggest challenge as we move forward. Says Dr. Gandhis Majika, the founder of Sunsleepers. Great being reconnecting with you, Gandhis. Thank you so much. We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I'll welcome our second guest for today, Dr. Nalaka Gunarata, Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tavish, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here at Sirius XM. Today we're talking about sleep medicine and what we can learn from sleep medicine about many other clinical indications. In the first half of the show, I talked to Dr. Gandhis Majaika, who is the founder of Sound Sleep Health. In the second half of the show now, it's my great pleasure to welcome my friend, colleague, and co-author, Danalaka Gunarata, an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perman School of Medicine, and an innovator and entrepreneur in the area of sleep medicine. Welcome, Nalaka. Welcome. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here, Christian. Thanks for inviting me. Now, like, uh, talk about your education and how you became a thought leader in sleep medicine. What's kind of the career path to get into your position? Uh, interesting question. So basically, uh, there's a lot of different pathways to get involved with sleep medicine. From the physician pathway, uh, people can do an internal medicine training, or they can do neurology or family medicine, for example, and then do an additional fellowship in sleep medicine. But there's also opportunities for individuals who don't have a direct medical background. One can become a sleep technician, for example, and then there's also a need for uh, individuals who can help with logistics and management of clinics as well. And uh, give us a sense, uh, you're doing a lot of research, so you're not five days a week in the clinic, but give us a sense of sleep medicine and the clinical operations here at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think sleep medicine is a really a fascinating clinical operation because it involves both an outpatient component and then there's a diagnostic testing component and then also a growing inpatient uh, component for sleep medicine as well. From the perspective of the outpatient component, it largely resides on kind of a typical model of inviting uh, you know, patients to come in for consults to initially assess their sleep complaint. And sleep is something that we spend six to eight hours a day doing. So we spend a lot of time doing it, but it's always fascinating as a doctor because most of us don't know what we're doing. So, because we're asleep, of course. So we often have to turn to our family and friends to kind of tell us, well, this is what's happening. So I often uh, really enjoy talking to my patients, but it's even more interesting when a partner can join them in the clinic visit to actually confirm or refine, let's say, the history that the patient might be providing. So in the first half of the show, we talked about obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, what, what other conditions do you see? Obstructive sleep apnea is a very important one, and it's great that you spent uh, time discussing that because it is one of the most common and most serious of the sleep disorders and is often underappreciated. Other important sleep disorders include insomnia, which is something that many of us have struggled with during our lives. Many of us have had periods of brief insomnia, for example, and up to 10 to 15 percent of the population will go on to develop more chronic uh, insomnia that can be really quite distressing and debilitating. Other sleep disorders include limb movement disorders, acting out your dreams, and other disorders such as sleepwalking or sleep talking. 
Give us a sense of the size of the operation. So you, you're one physician there, but you're not the only physician at Penn Medicine specializing in, in sleep. How many patients would come to your facilities on a, on a daily or monthly basis? The volume at the Penn Sleep Center is fairly high, and uh, we have about uh, 15 to 20 physicians or nurse practitioners involved with patient care at approximately three to four clinical sites. And in terms of volume, we do several thousand sleep studies a year across these multiple sites and have upwards of 4,000 to 6,000 patient visits. So it really is a, a pretty large entity, and it really is one of the uh, largest sleep clinical practices in the area and, and has, thankfully, because of the research that we're conducting and the uh, exciting work in other areas as well in the innovation space also, the program really has helped to have, has evolved into a, a national leader in the space. From the perspective of technological innovation, uh, talk how the industry of sleep care has evolved and where it is today. In particular, I understand that your department has had a major impact in the area of take-home studies and showing efficacy of diagnostics in these kind of take-home devices. Tell us about that kind of history and evolution. I think the relationship between technology and sleep is a fascinating one because it highlights the potential for innovation to elucidate diseases and disorders that previously we didn't fully appreciate and to identify clearly new therapeutic options as well. We often think about technology and innovation as allowing us to develop new ways to treat a condition but less frequently, we're aware of the fact that technology and innovation can help us identify things that have been going on perhaps since the dawn of humanity, frankly. So in regards to this field of sleep medicine, you mentioned earlier sleep apnea. When we think about sleep apnea, it was diagnosed as a clinical entity only in the 1960s, more or less. But the reality is, it's probably been with us since the first humans were around. What happened? Well, essentially, it was technology. There was a discovery of the different parameters that can be measured, the information could be synthesized, and groundbreaking research done by the early pioneers in the field helped to identify sleep stages, normal and abnormal breathing parameters, and suddenly we identified a condition which has really quite serious consequences in terms of risk of cardiac problems or memory or stroke or even sudden death, unfortunately, while sleeping. And it was only identified recently, but it's really been here all along. And I think that highlights, in part, the importance of doing this kind of research and, and uh, encouraging these kind of investigations. We naturally think of sleep as a period of rest where relatively little is happening. Yet, it turns out that it's actually a very dynamic and active time in our day. And it had previously been unrecognized, but only recently have we come to appreciate the potential that it offers. So it's a fascinating evolution, I would imagine, when you discover a new field, like with sleep medicines, maybe in the 60s or 70s, financially, since this is business radio, it, it, it's great, right? Because there are new things that you can test for. On the other hand, when you find a new way of testing something in a much more accurate and potentially much more cheap way, uh, you, that, that's not so great. So uh, tell tell about that. Talk a little bit about the transition from the testing overnight to the testing at home. That's a great question you're posing, and I think there are a lot of interesting lessons that one can take from this process. 
also because it occurs in really every field, frankly. And the reality is that these new technologies often allow us to identify a condition and then develop initial care pathways. But then further technologies and developments arise as well, which change the cost model of care delivery. In general, these are almost always for the good because ultimately it's the patient who benefits from access to services and a lower cost of care. And that really is what this is all about, is really delivering effective care to the patients. So I feel that when we are confronted with these opportunities to develop new technologies and implement them in this space, as you alluded to, and I'll describe in more detail some of these, we should try to embrace them and understand them and try to deliver them in the most effective way to help our patients. So let's talk a bit more about the specific example that you mentioned, which is the development of cheaper and sort of more efficient ways to diagnose sleep apnea. So in the way of context, as you probably heard from your prior speaker, we used to do, or we still do to a certain extent, more um, involved um, sleep studies that involve up to 25 channels and signals, and that's been pared down to a, a, a more concise set of signals. It might be three to five signals that can then be used to diagnose the most common complaint, which is sleep apnea, as you mentioned earlier. So that has been quite disruptive, and I'm sure your prior speaker kind of alluded to that as well. But while that is disruptive, the, the interesting thing is that a lot of us knew that it was going to happen. So there were signs that this was coming down the pike. And you mentioned that research had been done at UPenn, for example, that, that demonstrated some of this. And, and really, it's uh, kind of a testament to the, to the um, uh, commitment and dedication of these researchers that they explored these topics and they really tried to find the truth, even though it meant that it would create a paradigm shift for their profession because they are committed to seeking the truth and, and learning about the role of uh, home sleep studies versus in-lab sleep studies. Because while in-lab sleep studies are more accurate, they can result in delayed diagnosis because of the expense and other burdens. So developing a cheaper and more efficient way of diagnosing it is clearly in the interest of the patient. So really the first part of this process is looking at what the literature is showing and what the research is showing. And the fascinating thing about medicine is that a lot of what's going on is being published in peer-reviewed papers and being presented at conferences. So you can see some of these trends starting to take shape. And from a business perspective, you can start modeling a practice to anticipate some of these changes. Now, tell a little bit about, uh, talk a little bit about the transition period. In any other industry that I've seen where disruption was on the horizon, there's this, there's this pushback, right? They say, I mean, ideally, in, in regulated uh, industries, you say, like, well, this is not as good, and this is dangerous to the patient. You play the game that we've seen in the oil industry or the smoking cigarette, you just blow out some fake news. Uh, because of the research you mentioned, basically the evidence was clear that sleep medicine, at least in many indications, the, the, the home testing for sleep apnea is, is as good. How how did this happen? How how do you run a test like that? That's a fascinating question. And I think it really does depend on a case-by-case -case basis in regards to the diagnostic entity that's being evaluated. It turns out that home sleep testing is particularly useful for one specific kind of sleep apnea, which is obstructive sleep apnea. And then other variants, such as central sleep apnea, cannot be effectively diagnosed. So it took some time for the field to legitimately assess that and determine what is the appropriate hardware standard that will allow us to get the most bang for the buck, so to speak. One of the fascinating things about the medical space is that it's a 
incredibly large space. I mean, literally one in five dollars in the U.S. economy, uh, almost 20 percent of the U.S. economy is being devoted to medical care related issues. So when you start making a change, even if it appears like a small change, it can have ramifications that are in the billions of dollars. So it is reasonable to be prudent and thoughtful about what to do and to build up an evidence base, as you mentioned, by seeing what the research is showing, et cetera. The challenge that arises is when do you pivot? When do you pivot from the evidence to the practice? And that is a very complicated dynamic that involves consumer groups, the insurance payers, the device manufacturers, the professional associations. So this kind of dialogue that occurs is one which uh, is becoming increasingly more transparent. There's more data being shared. There's more numbers, information being available. Um, but what is fascinating about it is that it often seems to go very slowly, and then it happens very suddenly. So everybody can get kind of lulled into a certain complacency that, well, you know, this is how it should be, but it's never going to happen. And then suddenly, it happens. I feel that, um, you know, tele telemedicine, for example, is an, is an interesting uh, example of this as well, because there's been a lot of initial excitement, then things kind of quieten down a bit, people are a bit skeptical, but now we're seeing a lot of interesting action happen, and I think you're doing a piece on that at some point as well, which will be really fascinating. So is it the nature of reimbursement that makes this sudden thing? I mean, in many industries, we see the slow, steady growth of a, of a new technology, of a new category, versus in healthcare, there's there's a, oftentimes a binary decision in whether Medicare, Medicaid pays for something. Is that explaining that suddenly all floodgates are open and it's the storm is there? Reimbursement is definitely a key component of this, and you're absolutely right in identifying that. And that's a stark contrast to the typical consumer space where you see a product being rolled out, you gradually see uptake of the product, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in the healthcare space, it's sort of like a like the floodgates are turned on or off. It's sort of like the Hoover Dam. Suddenly someone opened and then the water is just pouring out. And so that's sort of what happens in the reimbursement space. But in addition, there's also the regulatory space in terms of the FDA and other oversight agencies that play a key role. And that often predates the reimbursement component. In case you're just tuning in and you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Nalaka Gunarada, professor at the University of Pennsylvania. University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. We're talking about sleep medicine. Now, uh, I know that you're very active in the kind of translational research here at Penn, and we have been talking about what happened in terms of innovation over the last 10 years. What is in the hopper for the next 10 years? Can, what's in the pipeline right now? Well, it's actually a very exciting time, and it, it does call to mind that Chinese proverb about, you know, may you live in exciting times and sort of the pluses and minuses of that. And it's a, a very exciting time because of the growing appreciation of the importance of sleep in our lives. Sleep is something which has been relatively neglected. It, as I mentioned before, it's only been fairly recently that we've really attained a true understanding of what's happening during sleep. And now that we have a, this growing appreciation and there's this infrastructure of sleep clinics and new technology development, that has all created an incredible platform upon which innovation can occur and new opportunities for development and discovery. So what's going to be happening? So I do think that there's a couple of important trends. One is the growing prevalence and use of mobile devices such as smartphones and smartwatches and wearable diagnostic testing. And like I mentioned earlier, there was an initial very high 
degree of expectation about the potential. Things have kind of plateaued, but I suspect that in the near future, we're going to see some truly groundbreaking developments that will fundamentally transform care. What might these be? Well, it's really anybody's guess at this point, but it could be devices that allow us to have a more continuous monitoring of our performance and our alertness and our well-being. Uh, this kind of input can help guide us in terms of when to optimize our day, when to do certain things to achieve the highest productivity levels, etc. Furthermore, there's a fascinating opportunity to see whether we can actually fundamentally change not just how much we sleep, but what actually happens when we are sleeping. So right now, it's been one of these situations where you go to bed, and then you wake up. And what happened in between is anybody's guess. And we don't really have too much of an opportunity to really change what's happening in between. We have identified a disorder, sleep apnea. We have identified a treatment such as CPAP or other treatment devices like oral appliances that can help improve that specific disorder. But what about poor sleep quality? What about unrefreshing sleep? What about insomnia in a broader sense? Can we change what's happening during a specific sleep interval so that we wake up as a better version of ourselves? And that's a very exciting possibility as well. When will that happen? I don't know. But I do know that a lot of teams are doing, are doing research to explore ways to tweak the sleep process to maximize the benefit. So it's interesting that there seem to be two trends going on and from the financial perspectives of the sleep clinics, it almost strikes me they're going in opposite directions, right? One is we recognize sleep is becoming, it has always been important, but we have finally learned about the importance of sleep, and that creates an increasing need and increasing market for people kind of thinking, well, maybe I'm the quantified self, and we're going to get an extra 10% boost in productivity through my better sleep behavior, and that's worth something for people, and that brings more money in. But then through automation and kind of using data analytics, we might potentially make people like you more efficient, more productive. That would be bad for sleep clinics, right? Are those the two main trends that are going on? I think you have hit the nail on the head there. A, a lot of fields face this dichotomy and this tension where innovation can disrupt an existing model, but it might open up new opportunities for additional care. And I think at, at, at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind our patients because they are the ones that we are here to help. And if we ultimately can develop innovations and approaches that help our patients, the, the broader field is going to benefit as well, of course. Um, so I feel that, that that kind of guiding principle can help us navigate through some of these uncertain times as we face these new technology developments. But to be somewhat legalistic about that, the question of who is your patient is slightly endogenous to that in the sense that you could focus more on the lifestyle sleeper, if you let me kind of call that segment this, that way, and say, that, well, look, I'm basically taking less care for the person who is overweight, uh, that who needs uh, dealing with sleep apnea and is potentially falling asleep behind the, the, the wheel of a bus, kind of the more the hard patients, if you will, and go like, well, the money, the, 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 the promised land is the kind of the 30-year-old the triathlete who wants to kind of get a little bit faster by sleeping better. Uh, in some sense, that's a different choosing a different patient. As an academic medical center, is it typically your tendency to focus on the on the sickest of the sick, or is is is, is look at, going for lifestyle and optimization? Is that looked down on, or is the answer everything? That's uh, again a fascinating a question, Christian, and I like your term lifestyle sleeper. I had not heard that one before. I'll have to use that in the future. I think that this question really kind of hints at a unique potential that a uh, capitalist market offers, which is the potential to create 
niches that individual groups can focus on and address and achieve excellence within that specific area and have the highest value add in that specific area. Now, the reality of academic medical centers is largely that their business model is based on taking care of the sickest of the sick uh, because they can offer specialized services and resources that might not be available in more uh, smaller clinics or operations. So it's understandable that many of these academic centers do focus on that. Um, these uh, patients who are the sickest of the sick, they often have, uh, you know, un unfortunately, complex physiology, and, and there's some really interesting questions and challenges that arise. And an academic medical center, especially with its research focus, often is, is very intrigued by exploring that. Uh, the reality is these patients also tend to be more financially lucrative as well, so that's also a kind of an added incentive to explore this market or develop resources in this market. Um, that being said, though, there is a growing awareness that one needs to have a diversified customer portfolio in order to weather changes that might arise from sudden changes in the insurance or other device landscape. And exploring things like lifestyle sleep or occupational sleep has been something that the Sleep Center here at Penn has prioritized under the leadership of Alan Pack and others who really played a key role in exploring these options. What is going to be the next? Is this data analytics, big data, where just we're going to learn so either neural networks or so some codifying some rules? Are we going to automate diagnostics this way? Great question. I, I completely agree with you that there is a tremendous potential for automating diagnostics and improving access to care and speeding up the time between uh, initial presentation and eventual diagnosis through the use of these technologies. I think the key questions that arise are the ones that occur whenever a new device is coming out, which is, what does the evidence show? How accurate? is this methodology or approach, and what is the potential benefit for the patient ultimately by implementing something like this. The particular challenge in the big data realm is that the algorithms themselves are have profound effects or impact upon the diagnostic accuracy. So even the slightest tweak in the algorithm can fundamentally transform the accuracy of the tool. So monitoring that and regulating that really presents a major challenge for the FDA and other oversight agencies. So I think that's a, an important question we have to think about. So envision, for example, a machine learning algorithm. One of the hallmarks of this approach is the ability to continuously learn, to continuously improve. How do you create a snapshot of that, which the oversight agencies can then carefully vet and monitor and say, yes, this has a sensitivity of this, a specificity of this, a false positive and a false negative rate of this, and then, yes, you can now use it in, in your patients. What if there's another improvement? When does that get reassessed? When does the data come out? So these are all fascinating questions that we don't yet have the full answers for, but I ultimately I feel that these technologies will allow a lower cost of care, which will be in the greater benefit for the patients. How about running like a Netflix type of contest, right? I mean, basically, Netflix became famous for putting a lot of the viewing data online and to ask people to submit algorithms or predictions. You sit on a ton of data on basically gathered information about these kind of multiple channels of sleep. You have done the diagnosis the old way. Couldn't we run a big data challenge on that? There's tremendous opportunities to look at big data and explore that in this context. A couple of issues that come up, though, that are worth mentioning are issues around privacy and protection of individual um, privileges. So the challenge with any of this type of data is that it's waveform data, and waveform data can create sort of an individual fingerprint that could discern oh. different individuals. So part of this 
involves really creating kind of a compact that's based on trust between the patients and the providers and the companies that are using this information so that there's a sense of security and, and privacy being maintained despite all that. Now, Dr. you mentioned earlier on that beyond the diagnostic ability, which is about sensing, you also reached a point now where you can actually intervene. Is that some form of neural stimulation, so extracranial kind of devices that sit on my head that send in waves, or how do you mess up my sleep? How do I mess up your sleep? By, by calling you at 2 in the morning, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that would be one intervention. Yeah, I could, I could I do that, I guess. But that's um, not what you're working on. Yeah, so. not, not, not what I'm working on right now. But uh, it is uh, uh, interesting because uh, uh, there, are, there are a variety of approaches to treating sleep, uh, especially insomnia, one of which does involve disrupting sleep uh, temporarily. But um, uh, to get back to your larger question, the fundamental issue uh, here is that uh, there's uh, several devices that are coming out on the market in the near future that can change the amount of time that we spend in a certain phase of sleep, which might have ramifications for how our brain functions once we wake out of sleep, because it might have allowed us to have more restorative sleep, for example. These might involve uh, magnetic, transcranial magnetic stimulation. They might involve acoustic interventions. They might involve temperature-based interventions. It's really a fascinating time. And I suspect that over the next three to seven years, we're going to start seeing more and more of this technology arise. Some of the key questions that do occur in this setting, though, are, one, what are the long-term consequences of these type of interventions? So it's one thing to do something for two weeks and then to improve your slow-wave sleep and then to have better memory function the next day. It's another thing to do something like this for 10 years, uh, for hours a night, and see what, it ha what effects that has. So I think that's something which, again, as we hinted at earlier, balances that, that delicate line between innovation and helping people versus understanding the consequences long-term of something. Thank you so much, Nalaka Gunaradam, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. We've reached the end of the show today. You've been listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.